Hey everyone, before this podcast begins, we want to tell you about some other arts-related podcasts you're going to love. They are The Conduit Music Podcast, Artsville, Gringo and the Man, Art World Horror Stories, and Not Real Art. On these action-packed podcasts, you'll hear experts talk about creativity, design, the music biz, the art world, visual art, American craft, Chicano art, street art, graffiti, and even stand-up comedy. So be sure to find and follow these great arts podcasts today. Now, back to your regularly scheduled programming. Warning, the Not Real Art Podcast is intended for creative audiences only. The Not Real Art Podcast celebrates creativity and creative culture worldwide. It contains material that is fresh, fun and inspiring and is not suitable for boring old art snobs. Now, let's get started and enjoy the show. Welcome to Not Real Art, the podcast celebrating creative culture worldwide. Got your boy, Man One, here in the house. Right on, right on. And the homie, Sourdough. What up, Man One? What up? How you feeling today, buddy? I'm feeling good. I'm alive. What are you working on in the studio? Oh, man. I'm working on a big project with a client. You know, it's just kind of like one big project, really, is all I'm doing. Yeah, that's about it. But, you know, it's a nice size gig, so I have a lot of time to work on it. For listeners that heard one of our earlier podcasts, they know that we are using a new platform, the Squadcast platform, to record this podcast, our podcast these days, in quarantine, social distancing and whatnot. You're at home in LA. I'm at home. So here we are looking at each other on the laptop, the computer screen here, doing this thing remotely, digitally, with high-tech solutions. And it's pretty fucking cool. I'm kind of digging it. Yeah, I think it's... Thanks for saying the mic over, by the way. The, the mic you sent me is pretty, pretty sweet. Hey, you're just happy that you don't have to drive to Encino. Yeah. <laughs> Anything's better than having to freaking slept to Encino. Yeah. If I could dial it in every day, let's do that. <laughs> yeah. But no, this sounds good. I'm really happy with this technology that's going on here. I'm excited today because we have a really interesting guest. I mean, before all hell broke loose with the COVID-19 fiasco, I was in New York, gosh, it was the first part of January now, I guess. I don't know, late January. And got the opportunity to sit down and interview our first professional curator and archivist a woman by the name of Lacey Flint, who is the archivist and curator of research collections at the Explorers Club in New York. She also serves as a contributing curator on the Travel Channel's Mysteries at the Museum and is a member of the NYC MER Board of Trustees. Her previous positions were at the UK's Royal Collection Trust, the Museum of Jewish Heritage, a living memorial to the Holocaust. And she got her MA in museum studies at the University of uh, Leicester. So Lacey is our first bona fide professional museum curator, archivist. She was a dope guest. I was like really charmed and impressed with what she had to say. And for those people on the other end of our podcast here who may not be familiar with the Explorers Club, the Explorers Club is a a famous old historical organization that has helped to support scientific research around exploring our planet, whether it's the oceans or 
space or other first ascents to Everest and the first person to travel to the North Pole, to the South Pole. I mean, the Explorers Club has been a part of those expeditions and has supported those missions. And it's a privilege and an honor to be a member of the Explorers Club. Cool people like Ernest Shackleton and Neil Armstrong, Sir Edmund Hillary, they're all members. Oh, by the way, your boy Sourdough happens to be a member as well. But of course, they've regretted that ever since. They're still trying to take it back. They're trying to kick me out. You know, when I went there to sit down with Lacey and interview her, I thought for sure they were going to yank my uh, membership. But somehow, some way, I fooled them again. But this interview is really cool. Lacey Flint from the Explorers Club. So I guess without any further ado, let's get into it and hear what she has to say. Lacey Flint, welcome to Not Real Art. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to be here. Oh my gosh. You have the honor, I think it's an honor, maybe dubious honor, (laughs) of being our first guest who is a professional archivist and curator. That is an honor. It's very exciting. Absolutely. Well, so my first question then is, how does one become a professional archivist and curator? What a question to start off with. (laughs) (laughs) I figured we'd just jump right in. You know, why why mess around here? Absolutely. How did this all happen? This crazy world that we live in. The reason that I wanted to become an archivist and curator, I will preface this with in a larger institution, my job is probably six people. And that's not to say, you know, I do a Herculean amount of things. It's just usually these are very specific specialties that individuals have. But at smaller institutions like the one where I work, you kind of have to wear many hats, which is very exciting because I never have to do the same thing two days in a row. But I didn't know that an archivist was a real thing or anything that you could become actually until I saw the movie, and this is, you're going to judge, saw the movie National Treasure with Nicolas Cage. No judgment. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not that I wanted to find National Treasure. It was that the Abigail Chase character, she was the director of the National Archives and she was actually touching the Constitution. And I saw that and really was completely baffled. Like, somebody can do this. This is a real job. Someone can touch the Constitution. That's incredible. Exactly. Who knew? Who had any idea? And I was in high school. And so I was like, okay, this is really awesome. And then I went to college and I went for history and education because I thought I was going to be, you know, a teacher and kind of do the more traditional educational route. And then as I was in the classroom and student teaching and with my kids who I absolutely loved and loved doing that, I was like, I taught second grade and fifth grade. Okay. My daughter's in second grade. Oh, nice. Best. Honestly, my favorite teacher is my second grade teacher, Mrs. Bataluco. But anyway, so, you know, we built the Erie Canal in my second grade classroom. It was awesome. And I really, you know, seeing the students react to those hands-on experiences and actually getting to be a part of history and touch history and do all of that, you know, I kind of thought, okay, how can we do this in an extra special way outside the classroom? So it's really resonates and kind of makes a huge impact on kids because they don't get a ton of history in the classroom, especially in those younger years because of the way Common Core and all of that is set up. And so I thought, okay, let's do museum education and kind of go that route. So I went on to get my master's, got it in museum studies, went to the University of Leicester in the UK, which is right in the East Midlands and right smack dab in the middle of the country. I had never actually been out of the country before. My first stamp in my passport was when I moved to the UK. Oh my God. Oh my God. Talk about jumping in. 
yeah. with both feet. That's Literally, amazing. Yep. No helmet, no, no no safety net. Went you just go. All by myself. I took a red eye and I <laughs> very distinctly remember landing in Heathrow because of course my visa was delayed. So I had sure, already missed a week sure. of classes. Landed in Heathrow, was so overwhelmed because I had to move literally within 24 hours. Called my mom and was like, what just happened? I just moved to London. I'm like, mom, (laughs) why did you let me get on this plane? (laughs) But anyway, went to this amazing program. And like I said, got my master's in museum studies. And I specialized in gallery education, communication and design, and then did a subspecialty in archival management. And so worked over there for a while, was with the Royal Collection Trust, was in their collections management department. My office was in the round tower of Windsor Castle, <laughs> which was incredible. And then There's my no music corner expired. office in the round tower. No, not so much. And I mean, I was... But you don't need one. I was bottom of the totem pole. They were lovely, but it was not like I would have gotten any type of corner office yes, in the round yes, tower yes, anyway. Yes. But my visa expired. I moved back and kind of was searching for anything and everything and came to what I thought was a networking meeting here at the Explorers Club. Ended up being a job interview. I was really glad I wore a suit that day. And I uh, was hired pretty much after two hours on the spot. And I've been here for six years now. So that's how it happened. I don't know if that's the most direct route that people take to get a job like this, but that was my journey. Well, it sounds like it might be the scenic route, which by the way, you and I, I think, know the scenic (laughs) route is actually the better route. It is. Yeah. If you have the time. You said so much and you know, there's a lot there I want to unpack because of course, I'll be honest. I mean, before you and I met yesterday, if somebody had asked me, what is museum studies? I mean, I would only guess you know what it is. You know, I know, of course, you know, museum directors exist, archivists exist. By the way, I'm I, I, I sit people, corrected yeah. here. I wonder how many people are mispronouncing it. I know I've been, you know, so I just wouldn't have been able to tell somebody, oh yeah, well, this is a you know thing that you can study. But and it sounds like you came up through education, which I get. That makes sense. But if in your bachelor's, like is there such a thing at that level as a bachelor's like museum studies or is it a master's program only? And then when you are studying museum studies at a master's level or what have you, what does that consist of and what is it comprised of in terms of exactly what are you studying? Sure, absolutely. So there are a few programs at the bachelor level in museum studies, and they might be called something different, you know, museology, which is just kind of a fun word to say. It is a weird Um, word. See, again, a new word. Museology. So there are a couple of universities that do have that as an undergraduate degree, but you typically do need extra years yes, of education. Yes. So you're not to going to on a bachelor's degree, you're probably not going to get an entry level job at a museum with just a bachelor's. A master's is required. You absolutely could. Okay. I don't want to be maybe in a third I don't want to say never. Yeah, exactly. You could. You could get a great internship and kind of grow from there. But sure. you look at these positions and a lot of them are masters or higher. You become a curator or you work in this field. And I think I said this to you yesterday, you know, you either become a curator because you're the only person in the world who is this expert in this one really obscure thing or, you know, you're the world's expert. And I think I used the example of slugs and you can speak Russian yesterday (laughs) (laughs) or you become a curator and you work in museums because you're more of a generalist and you get hired because you know how to handle the stuff for lack of a better phrase there. And so it just kind of depends. So I don't want to say that you can't do this job with just a bachelor's because you definitely can, Mm -hmm. but they are certainly looking for either a lot of years of experience or the extra years of education. So kind of 
So is your master's... All of us are a little bit scenic in the museum world, let's say. (laughs) Right, right, right. Mm -hmm. So at the master's level, that's a two or three year course? So when I was applying for my master's, I applied to NYU, I applied to Brown, I applied to GW, and I applied to the University of Leicester. The three schools that I applied to in the US were all two or three year programs. uh, But in the UK, it was a one year degree. And it was much cheaper. And so when I got accepted to Leicester, and that was my number one choice anyway, that's where I wanted to go. I wanted to kind of jump in with both feet and do something that I had never done before and kind of just go into this really, really immersive program. I mean, we were in class. It was a full-time job. It was Monday through Friday. Yeah, Yeah. nine to five. One Saturday a month, they would drop us off at a museum in the UK. And I'll never forget it because it's the most intimidating course title that you can ever have. It was called Guerrilla Consultancy, like Guerrilla Warfare. Um, And they dropped us off and they said, okay, you're going to meet with the team of curators here or the team of museum educators, and they're going to present you with real life problems that this museum is facing. You have to solve them. So you spend the morning kind of with your group going around trying to figure out ways to come up with solutions to whichever problem you faced. And it could have been in any category. It could have been, you know, younger audience engagement. It could have been trying to create hands-on activity packs for junior high students. It could have been adult engagement. It could have been exhibition design. So you didn't know. Fundraising maybe. Oh yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Development. You didn't know what specific category you were going to get. Exactly. And then you had to solve it. And then you presented your ideas back to whatever team you met with in the morning who gave you the initial problem. And it was incredible. It was really overwhelming, but also you learned so much so quickly because you got real-time feedback. You got a lot of times they actually implemented some of these changes. You know, if we designed a kid's pack or something for a museum, they would try it out. They would beta test it, which was really exciting oh, right to see on. this happen and see what worked and what didn't. And so you were, it wasn't just ideas. It was actual on the ground. Practical. Practical Laboratory, work. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so yeah. that's why I ended up at Leicester and that's kind of how it happened. Right. Again, sorry to focus on this, but I'm just so fascinated. So that year, it sounds like it was an immersive full-time job kind Mm -hmm. of approach to it. And you've got these different areas of focus. What are some of the areas of focus that were your favorite? Oh my gosh, definitely. So the course was broken into three modules. Mm -hmm. And then one of the fourth module was your specialty. And then the fifth module technically was your dissertation. Mm -hmm. And so I loved, again, it was kind of like the Hunger Games, they gave us these (laughs) random artifacts, Mm. random, random artifacts that you had no idea what to do with. And you had to curate exhibits from them and you had to curate a display from them. And that Mm. was incredible too, because you had to then find the theme. You know, typically with exhibition design, you have an idea or you have a really great artifact or a set of artifacts or a collection and you go from there and that sort of builds together. But with this particular task, we were given, my group was given a set of rocks, literally rocks. Right, they're going to give you the most challenging Exactly. They were, possible, and I mean, right. they were beautiful rocks. It yep. was a rock collection, but sure, we had sure. to come up with something to do with them. And so most of them were from different minds and we went about it kind of with this fragile earth perspective and said, you know, is it worth it was our big question of is mining these diamonds and these gems and all of that or these beautiful rocks from wherever they're being mined from worth it for 
the surrounding landscape because we had found these really incredible and really dramatic aerial images of these mines that had, you know, kind of caved in and collapsed mm-hmm. and all that. And mm-hmm. so to come up with that thesis, though, was not something, I mean, none of us were rock experts in any way, shape or form. And so that was one of my favorite things to do because you really had to not only think about the practical side of, okay, what type of gloves should you wear when you're handling these rocks? You know, what are gloves, your displays going to look like? What are your displays going to look like? What is going to be the most structurally sound way to display them? How are you going to make sure that all of your environmental monitoring is going to work out when mm. you know there are different types of rocks and could potentially need a little bit of a different microclimate to not decompose in? Right. Um, Conservation, then, preservation. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you had to think about all of these things, which was so interesting because it was the culmination of yeah. everything that we had been learning. And so that was really fantastic and one of my favorites. But then I also really loved, as I said, my specialty was in gallery education, communication and design. And so that was the specialty module that I had taken. And so that was working with all levels of audiences, you know, whether it be adult learners or, you know, whoever coming in, you know, younger kids and designing really relatable and functional and meaningful packs or activities or forms of engagement for them in museums to keep things relevant. Because that's constantly the question. And actually, you know, another thing that was really interesting was we constantly questioned what is a museum and what makes a museum and what is the responsibility and role of a museum today? You know, we don't, and it's such an interesting idea. So many people think of museums as these big old buildings with lots of dusty old stuff in it. And for a long time, that's what museums absolutely were. And they stemmed from cabinets of curiosity in the Renaissance and you showed your wealth by the size of your collection and all of that. And that's how, you know, museums ultimately came about. But today... It's so much more about how can we effectively engage with the audience and the communities with which we are working and how can we serve these communities to make not only the museum relevant, but the discussions that we're having within the museums and how can we bring that forgotten history back to life and how can we tell a more complete story? And so I love that aspect of it as well is, you know, kind of bringing that sort of untold aspect of history using sometimes the very same artifacts that had been on display for years and years to tell one story, using them to tell the other side of the story, which I think is a really, really interesting component of what is going on in museums. Well, that must be one of the greatest challenges, deciding or choosing the story you want to tell because there are so many potential stories. Exactly. So much of the time, your initial instinct is, okay, I want to tell the whole story. And right. that is everybody's goal, of course, is to show things in the most truthful way you can. way. Exactly. But, right. but then it's, you know, narrowing things. It's, it's like that old kind of idea of it's much easier to write an essay on one of the more obscure presidents than it is to write an essay on George Washington because sure. there's so much information sure. on George sure. Washington. How do you write a three-page paper on him? Right. Whereas if you do it on... Well, and I'm thinking, what's that cooking analogy? Something about when you put all the ingredients in the pot, it ends up not tasting like much. Yeah, you know exactly, what I mean? So exactly. you want it to be. Yeah, you want to have, you know, your, what distinct, is it, fat right. acid and something else. <laughs> <laughs> you want to be able to tell a complete story, but you don't want it to become muddled. And so right, it's right. kind of that question that is really interesting to me as well as sure. how do you tell a truthful story without sort of regurgitating facts and just sort of yes. throwing things yes. to your audiences with just too much information. Well, you've touched on so many things there because, I mean, you mentioned the word relevant, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, libraries are struggling to be relevant in our technology, information age, digital age. And I know museums are having a similar challenge. Attendance is down in many museums, I understand, or maybe they're improving. So, how do you leverage the archives you have, the stories you can tell in a way that is compelling to your community, to your 
audience. I'm guessing there's a lot of curatorial directors wringing their hands over this issue as we speak. Yeah, absolutely. It's definitely something every museum, if they're not already talking about it, should be talking about is how do you stay? And believe me, I'm not saying museums are irrelevant. I of course, love of course. museums. I love this museums. Is, yeah, I mean, me. it's, yeah. it's my life. It's my job. Yeah. It's all fantastic. It's a matter of getting creative and it's a matter of kind of asking yourself as an institution or as, you know, whether you're a large institution or a smaller one, what is your mission? Who are the people that you're trying to talk to? Mm-hmm. And how are you going to go about making that dialogue happen. Because now the really, really important thing in museums is not, as I said, regurgitating information. It's creating a dialogue. And that's how you stay relevant is engagement. Engagement, 100%. And that means something different for every single museum across the board. There's no perfect formula to do it. You know, an art museum is going to be much different than a natural history museum and how they do it. And, you know, the basis and the foundation of what they do and how they start those dialogues is going to be the same. But the dialogues that they want to have and how they actually bring it about and create that engagement is going to be really different because you typically bring in different audiences, different types of artifacts, artwork, all of that. And so it really is about figuring out your mission for your museum and your strategic vision and planning and kind of creating a meaningful dialogue with people within your collections. In so many verticals, industries, communities, businesses, whatever, there's this sort of tug of war between the old guard and the new guard. Mm -hmm. And some folks are resistant to change, whereas other people really want to be progressive Mm -hmm. and what have you. I'm guessing, dare I say, younger, hipper, cooler archivists, curators (laughs) such as yourself bump up against some sort of more staid status quo protectionist kinds of folks. Like, Mm -hmm. Talk about some of the struggles that you've had in terms of trying to innovate in your space, either in the UK or here. Uh, I guess what I'm getting at is technology. So for example, Mm -hmm. you know, you specialized in exhibition design, Mm -hmm. you know, and now we can do so many great things with technology that could be the shiny new thing that's Mm -hmm. very trendy, but may absolutely not be appropriate, right? Right. You know, so talk about that. Right. So I work at the Explorers Club. what, What is the Explorers Club? So it's a private membership club. We were founded in 1904 and we were founded by seven Arctic explorers because essentially what happened at the turn of the 20th century was the equivalent of the space race, but it was the race for the North Pole. Everybody was pushing the boundaries of further north, wanted to be the person to get there. And so all of these societies had cropped up with the intention of bringing together these like-minded Arctic explorers to learn from one another and build on what each other had accomplished. And so one of those societies was called the Arctic Club of America. And our seven founders were all part of that Arctic Club and essentially said to themselves, well, wait a second, there's a lot more to explore than just the Arctic, right? So their ideas became the foundation of our mission, which today is to explore land, sea, air, and space. And our members have been very busy in doing so. We were the first to the North and South Pole. We were the first to the highest and lowest points on Earth and first to the surface of the moon. So really exciting. Today we've about 3,500 active members. You're not bragging, though. I'm this, not this bragging. Is, you're not proud. I'm not proud. I don't, you know, I'm not at all passionate about what I, I do. I don't, want yeah. to, I don't want to brush over what you just said. Yeah. I mean, what you just said is freaking incredible. It is. I mean, so I... So as part of your job, you're dealing with astronauts. You're dealing with explorers that have been in the bottom of the ocean. You're talking to people who have been to the North and South Pole just as part oh, of yeah. your My days job. start like a really bad joke. It's like, so today, an astronaut and an underwater roboticist and a speleologist walk into the club. And it's so serious. I mean, I don't wear jeans to work anymore to clean the archives, which is a dirty job, as you could imagine, because the first time that I did it, I was behind the stacks and kind of dusting and, you know, 
doing some conservation and preservation checks on some different documents covered in red rot, which is that stuff that comes off of old books. Yes, um, yeah, the old right. dust, it's called yeah. red rot. Luckily, machine washable. Tide but, did the job. Yeah, mm. covered in and just, tides. you know, in archival grime, so yes, to speak, yes. and dust. And I get a knock on my door and I come around the corner and there's this guy in this three-piece suit and he's like, hi, I'm the former president of NASA and I am just covered in, and I'm like, oh, great, perfect. So that's... Yeah, <laughs> occupational hazard. Occupational yep. hazard. You just always have to be prepared. You never know when these really cool people are going to show up, yes. which is makes it a really inspiring place to work and also just kind of one of those things where my coworkers and I always say, you know, we work in this really strange bubble that's kind of not real life because we get this incredible exposure to these people who are groundbreaking pioneers in their fields. And we just are like, oh, hey, how are you? You know what I mean? Yeah, and right, so it's, right. it's just really re- fun. Turns out they're um, human beings and normal people who absolutely, like you know, yeah. coffee and whiskey too. Exactly. Know? And they are members, as I said, we have about 3,500 active members. We represent yeah. over 60 countries and they go on upwards of 600 expeditions each year. Yeah. And so my job is to take care of everything that they are bringing back from those expeditions, which is very exciting. Yes. You know, I get some really strange things in the mail. What's something top of mind uh, something strange that you've gotten in the mail? A tiger. You've gotten a tiger I've in got the mail. I got a tiger pelt in the mail. We do have a taxidermy <laughs> collection, which is not something yes. I ever thought I would have. Yes. In my undergrad, my history specialty was World War II. How many so stamps I never, on a tiger package? It was a FedEx package. So I'm not sure what it actually yeah, right, cost right, to right, get right. it here. But I did get a tiger in the mail. But we do have a taxidermy collection. Mm. And that's one of the interesting things kind of going back to that initial point of, you know, that old guard versus new guard is taxidermy is very taboo right now. Rightfully so, you know, especially with an organization such as ours where our members are so focused on conservation. You know, we literally, our members are the people who guard the rhinos. That's them. So it's this really incredible group of people who are giving of themselves to save the planet. And so to have a room full of taxidermy seems really... Like it, exactly. Yeah. It seems like an incredibly polarizing and just yeah. can almost confusing yes. dialogue to have and conversation sure. to have. We don't accept any new taxidermy, but the tiger was an exception that we made. And so I did get the tiger in the mail. She came from Florida, but originally came from Nepal. But the reason that we do still display the taxidermy and made the exception for this tiger in particular yes. is because ironically taxidermy in its earliest scientific forms, and Carl Akeley being the father of modern taxidermy, who's a club member, and for whom the Akeley Hall of African Mammals, yeah, is named for him at the American Museum of Natural History. He's the person who said, wait a second, if we are taking these animals, because think about it, right? 1910, 1920, you can't bring the public into the field. The you can't bring it. people on safari. Yeah. You can't, you know, you can only bring a limited number the of researchers. Positive. Exactly. And so it was Akeley who said, if we're taking these animals to bring them back to museums and to universities for further study, whether it be from scientists or the public, yes. then we need to make them look as they did when they were alive. And yep. so he's the person who sculpted every single specimen before he ever stretched a pelt over it and turned it into this pseudo art form, which is really interesting to kind of have that whole discussion. And that is why we still display it is because every piece of taxidermy that we have here at the Explorers Club was collected on a scientific expedition yep. for scientific study. And yep. so it is important, again, when you're trying to tell a whole story of mm-hmm. conservation, even though the taxidermy conversation, it can be an uncomfortable one, especially, you know, there are people who refuse to come into the gallery and look at the taxidermy. We get that. We get a lot of pushback. But because we are a 501c3 with an educational mission, we do still display it and we do still have that conversation. And that is one of the things that is interesting, you know, because we've had conversations 
about do we display less or what do we kind of do? And the interesting thing about working at a private membership club is that I have this museum collection in a non-museum setting. And so I have to make sure that I'm serving the members. And a lot of these members expect the club to look a certain way. And so when I go to change things out, there's a lot of pushback for good or for bad. It's all part of it. And you kind of roll with it and you see what happens. But it's an interesting situation to be in because, you know, both sides have really valid points, right? The current conservation community that we have such a strong voice in is like, okay, why are we showing this? And then there are the scientists who kind of say, well, this is how it sort of all evolved. So you just have to make sure that you're telling that full story. And that's kind of how it all works. But I mean, in terms of things looking a certain way at the clubhouse, I don't have the luxury of a larger museum or institution where I can just change out exhibits. And it's not because I'm not able to or anything like that, but it's just interesting to have those conversations with people when, for example, I put up a then and now photo display, which rotates through with photos from our members currently in the field and juxtaposes them with really iconic archival images. And it, you know they don't have to be retracings of expeditions, but they, of course, have to have the same theme. So whether it be the transformation of technology from 1969, Buzz Aldrin and Neil Armstrong land Landing on the moon to 2009, 40 years later, you have a photo of Mike Massimino and astronaut Mike Good on the last mission to repair the Hubble. So that's 40 years, right? right? Not a long time to get no. man to the moon to then doing these incredible out of vehicle walks and repairs and all of that on the incredible technology and space satellites and all of that and do all that. So the whole point of this, when I took the walls for the then and now display, which covers three walls and a sixth floor townhouse. Just for our listeners, how many square feet is the Explorers Club? You know what? I actually don't know that off the top of my head, but I do know it's a six-story townhouse on the Upper East Side of Manhattan. And when you are on the top floor, as we are now in our map room, you are 77 feet above sea level. We do know (laughs) this. Yes. So there you go. What are our coordinates? I'm going to get them wrong, but I know 46 is one of them, which is really interesting because we are 46 East 70th Street as our actual address. But anyway, so when I took the then and now walls, I actually had a member come up to me and say, this is nice. It's fine. But I really loved the artwork that was hanging here before. And it was, they were beautiful pieces. They were large oil paintings from expeditions that had happened. And they had been hanging there for probably 30 years. And our president at the time was standing next to me and he said, oh, I don't remember what was there. Could you tell me what it was? And this member said, well, I don't remember what it was, but I remember really liking it. So it's really interesting when you kind of think about, oh, okay, you know, people just, they get comfortable. And at a place like a private club, they want that comfort and they want that familiarity. So you have to kind of baby steps. (laughs) Like who moved the furniture in my house? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Which that pride in the clubhouse is one of the reasons that we love it so much, right? The members pride in the way the club looks and the way that they want to be here and have this be, you know, their workspace or their meeting space or whatever is fantastic. So it's an interesting dichotomy of, okay, I want to push things forward and show people what our members have been up to for the past 115 years. And maybe this painting from 1930 doesn't necessarily do that. But how do I move it? without somebody getting upset. You know, not that I'm against ruffling feathers, believe me, but but it's it's interesting. To be fair, right? I mean, it's worth pointing out that whether you're at this institution, another institution, this kind of struggle is commonplace. It's it's like par for the course, right? Because you have people that are passionate about 
their interests or their agenda or their incentives or, mm-hmm. or their objectives, whatever it is. And so it's just that. It's why they call it work. Exactly. Yes, exactly. <laughs> you know? Lacey, you've mentioned a couple times where we're at. We're in the map room at the Explorers Club. For our listeners, explain to them what the map room is and what's in here, why it's important and interesting. Sure. So the clubhouse itself, it was built in 1910 and it was built as a private family home for the Clark family. So the Clarks were the heir to the singer song machine company. They're also the Clarks of the Clark Institute of Art in New England and Cooperstown Baseball Hall of Fame. We work with all audiences, which is fantastic. And so the Clarks lived here until about 1960, which is when Stephen Clark passed away. And basically his wife said, I don't need this big giant townhouse all to myself yeah. and downsized. And so the Explorers Club moved in in 1965. Okay. Where we were had, we before that? We had about eight different locations okay. before that, all a series of rented rooms. Sure. This is the only building that we've ever actually owned. Yeah. And it was purchased through a big fundraising push that was spearheaded by Lowell Thomas, the famous broadcast journalist, yeah. and the DeWitt family of Reader's Digest. And so they kind of got everybody together to get the funds to purchase the building. And we've been here ever since. And the home, to paint just more of a general picture, it was designed by British architect Frederick Sterner. And he created a fusion of a Tudor-style home and 15th century second-phase Jacobian Renaissance, which, you know, of course you get as soon as you walk in, right? You're like, oh, yes, absolutely. This is Jacobian Renaissance. Yeah, absolutely. And believe me, the amount of time it takes for 15th century second-phase Jacobian Renaissance to roll off the tongue, it's pretty significant. But Good tongue twister. Exactly. And so it's a lot of mahogany linen fold paneling. We have stained glass. We have these incredible vaulted ceilings in so many of the spaces. But the map room is the highest point in the clubhouse. And it is a peaked ceiling that we have going on in here. But the wallpaper is what's really, really cool. It is a huge enlargement of a map from 1758. And you can see Greenland on it. And so it's really this ancient looking map that's now the wallpaper. And the map itself is, like I said, you can see Greenland, but it's more of the North Mm -hmm. Sea and Mm -hmm. that general area. Mm -hmm. We are flanked by rows and rows of map cases, which house our approximately 3,500 maps. Mm -hmm. And our oldest map is from 1814. And then we go all the way up until fairly present day. Not so much anything within the last 10 years. But definitely early 2000s, we have maps from that. How many cartographers are members? Actually, one of my favorite people in the club, he is the head cartographer at the University of Arkansas. And he's done some really extensive work here in our map collection, which is really fantastic. But his job, you know, is to not only make maps, but also conserve them and preserve them and tell us more about the maps that already exist, which is fantastic. But in terms of how many cartographers, I mean, it's not the most prevalent. Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. uh, No, no, no. Right. I mean, you yeah, know, I mean, like how many it, cartographers it's kind of a dying are there. Exactly, at this exactly. Point how many the... cartographers are there in the world, right? <laughs> right, right, right. Um, so we've got a small yeah. handful way, of cartographers. Way, a lot of people don't understand this, but or to know this, but there was huge controversy decades ago when cartographers started to realize that they were slowly becoming obsolete as the world was becoming completely mapped. And mm-hmm. so there was, and this is complete bullshit, of course, but I'm just yeah. saying, like, <laughs> they did their best to slow the mapping process. Like, wait a minute, exactly. like, we're, we're well, writing no, ourselves I out mean, of a job. There's still so much. And we say this all the time at the club because so many people ask us what's left to explore. But the incredible thing about exploration is not only is it completely ongoing, you can go to the same place a dozen times, think about in your own lives, you can find something new every time you go to the same place. Technology is changing, perspectives are changing, the climate is changing, the globe is changing. 
But when you think about kind of that more romantic ideal of exploration where you're finding something for the very first time or whatever you're doing on expedition is this pioneering science or whatever it may be, it's estimated we only know about 3% of what there is to know about our deep oceans. And guess what? Our deep oceans are where you find the highest mountain range on Earth is in the ocean. I think the tallest waterfall on Earth is underwater. And I am not a scientist, so I can't tell you more about it or where it even is. But so it's incredible to think about what's going on. And actually, Marie Tharp, she was a pioneer in underwater mapping in the 60s. And we have some of her maps here. And so it's really interesting to kind of see. Hear that, ladies? I mean, what a cool woman she was. (laughs) Absolutely. An underwater cartographer. Yeah. Yeah, underwater cartographer. What a job title. That and like, you know, things like Aquanaut. I'm like, how do you be like people say to me, like, what do you do? What My is your job, job title? Aquanaut. Yeah. And I'm like, no, no, no. Archivist is not as cool as Aquanaut. It's just not. But those are the people that you meet here, which is awesome. But back to kind of these early maps of the ocean floor, the average depth of the ocean is about 4,000 meters. And we've only explored about 40 of those meters. So yeah, right. there's still so much left to do and so yes. much left to see. And I mean, yes. only four people have ever been to the deepest point in the ocean. Most recently, Victor Vescovo, who is completing the Five Deeps expedition, where his team is going to the five deepest points in the oceans and measuring them and going down with all new technology to see what's down there. Cleaning up plastic. Yeah, I'm sure you saw that article. They found a plastic bag at the very bottom of the ocean, which is just heartbreaking. Yeah. But in terms of mapping and what people are finding, they find something new every time. So, you know, it's still cartography. My whole point is cartography is not dead. Um, And we still, so any, we love our cartographers. Any budding cartographers out there, don't lose hope. We still need you. Right, 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 right. We we have a shorting of nurses and primary care physicians and cartographers. Please, uh, young people. Inquire within. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. (laughs) So we've talked about so many interesting different kind of art forms, right? We've talked about taxidermy. We've talked about cartography. One of the cool things about this club, is of course all the artifacts and as we've talked about and artworks that are here because Mm -hmm. artists, painters, illustrators, eventually photographers were core members of some of these expeditions because that was the only way to document or record or validate or prove maybe that that expedition did what it said it did, accomplished the goals, et cetera, et cetera. And so talk a little bit about some of these artists who you have in the collection and some of the artworks. I mean, for those of us who know a little bit about oil painting or know a little bit about watercolor painting, I mean, it's challenging enough to be a decent watercolorist or oil painter, let alone trying to do that in harsh conditions at 40 below zero. You have some of these artists, you have some of these paintings in this collection of folks who were charged with this kind of challenge. Talk a little bit about that for us. Sure, absolutely. Our artists in exploration, they are absolutely integral part of any expedition team, even today, you know, and what it means to be an artist. I don't want to say what it means to be an artist has changed because that's not necessarily true, but the medium certainly has, right? Technology, Um, technology, of course, photography and videography and all of that, drones, GoPros, all of that. You don't go on expedition without that stuff. But a hundred years ago, you didn't go on expedition without an artist on the team. And we do have some incredible artists in exploration who are part of 
our expedition history and part of the club's history. As you mentioned, it is incredibly difficult to be an oil painter, right? Or, you know, be any type of watercolorist or whatever. But we do have in the collection the very first watercolors that were painted at the South Pole. And they were done by Arthur Beaumont. It was in the 60s. And he actually worked for the Navy. He was the official naval artist. And so you have these huge U.S. naval ships down at the South Pole. And he painted them in watercolor in the field. And it's incredible because if you look at his journals, you know, and we've met with his son, who's fantastic, and they tell these stories of he could only paint for about 30 seconds before his hands got too cold and he had to stick them back inside gloves to warm back up because it is, it's the South Pole. It's very cold. Um, <laughs> How he kept and, his watercolor paints, you know, well, from that's freezing, the other thing. Right? Not only was he freezing, but he had to figure out the right ratio of alcohol to water to actually have things not freeze up. And it's about 30. 30, 70, Are we 30. listening, people? Yes. yes. If you're planning to go Inside to the South Pole and you're here. planning to watercolor, in the 60s, the correct ratio was 70% water, 30% alcohol. So it's untested. I'm not first. sure. Yeah, yes. I'm not sure if that's still correct. I am not an We're artist. Not hold you yeah. to it, um, but it's really interesting to think about that scientific component of it is okay, how am I going to make this work in this particular area? Same thing in the Arctic. Tapanadney, who was an incredible artist in exploration in the early 1900s, his, his field oil sketches are obviously done in oil paint. And that also freezes in the Arctic. I don't know what the correct right. ratio of alcohol to oil paint is. I'm sorry. But again, you can only paint for so long yeah. before you have to stick your hands back in your gloves. Right. And it's just really incredible to think about those logistical complications that yeah. exist, right? I mean, we have here at the club, William Arlay was the artist who was with Carl Akeley from 1924 to 1926 on their African safari expedition. And this was the expedition where they were specifically tasked with gathering the specimens and documenting the landscape to then create the Akeley Hall of African Mammals at the American Museum of Natural History. And so Lay was a huge member of that team because his work then became the models for the backgrounds of the dioramas in the Hall of African Mammals. And so he painted 76 of these incredibly detailed landscapes in the field, and they were schlepping all over Africa. And again, think about it. When you are the artist in exploration, you need your paints, your easels, your canvases, your brushes, anything that you might need. You can't run to a craft store, you know, on right. safari and pick up more. There is no Blick Art <laughs> Supply Store. Um, and there's no Amazon yeah, to uh, Yeah, you to, can't to, to Amazon deliver. Prime yeah. to the Amazon. Um, right, 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 right. But, um, yeah, it's a little tough. So I don't know. Jeff Bezos will probably figure out a way to do it soon enough. But <laughs> I know, right? He's a member too, right? Yeah, <laughs> he is a member. Yes. <laughs> you know, just those logistics of packing are really incredible, right? And so when you look at like he painted 76 of these incredibly detailed landscapes and he painted them all in the field because he didn't want to create sketches and bring them back to New York and then try and recreate them. He didn't want to misremember anything. He wanted the viewer of the diorama to feel like they were standing at the base of Mount McKenna looking at gorillas or whatever the scene was depicting. And so anything that he painted was done in the field and any touch-ups that he had done were really just, you know, kind of travel scuffs that may or may not have happened. And he carried, I mean, there's some variation there, but he basically had one standard size canvas with him. And you'll see in some of the artwork that we have here and in some of those oil sketches, they're actually double sized. And there's a piece of wood bisecting the frame. And that was not for any artistic purpose. There's no reason that piece of wood, it's not supposed to look like a window or anything. Mm -hmm. It just was logistically easier to carry two small canvases than yep. one large one. And yep. so those double wide 
landscapes that he created were just two canvases pushed together. And so the piece of wood of the frame is hiding that canvas bisection, which is kind of interesting to think about. Well, as well. yeah, I'm guessing he probably had rolled canvases that he he had one frame. He probably stretched mm-hmm. multiple canvases over that one frame. And yep, then, absolutely. Yeah. But speaking of kind of stretching canvases, yeah. you look at somebody like Albert O'Parity, who was a pioneer in terms of being an artist in exploration. He was mm-hmm. absolutely incredible. Ironically, not the best artist. I mean, his work is beautiful to look at, but you wouldn't look at that and say, oh my gosh, that is, I mean, art is all, of course, subjective. Right, right, right. You know, it totally, you don't look at that and say, oh my gosh, that's, you know, an incredible, but what made him special was the fact that he was also a scientist and he was so committed to really accurately documenting things. But the one piece of art that I'm thinking of in particular in terms of gear and what you bring with you. He was on the 1896 Cape York Greenland meteorite expedition with Robert Perry. And on this particular expedition, he was there, of course, to sketch the landscape and document what was happening and what was going on. He ran out of canvas and he noticed that Robert Perry was wearing some type of, whether it be a work smock or apron or whatever it was, it was made from canvas. And he said, well, wait a second, give me that. I have more work to do and I'm out of canvas. Bob is freezing his ass off. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. It's fun. Perry didn't. He's a whole other kettle (laughs) of fish, let's say. When you look at this particular piece, it's even worse than a lot of O'Perdy's works because it was painted on an unfinished canvas. It was never supposed to be. It wasn't treated. It wasn't supposed to be a piece of art. And he actually wrote along the bottom of it, painted on Robert Perry's work apron, which is kind of incredible too. And it's just a great example of something that speaks to being prepared and rolling with the punches and getting creative and doing what you have to do because you have a job on that expedition. And that is to document what's going on. That comes with scarcity. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Yep. I know Parody was really, really interesting in his own right. And as I said, he was more of a scientist than he was an artist in the sense that he wanted to make sure everything was as accurate as possible. And so in instances, particularly where he wasn't necessarily on the expedition or if he was on the expedition, but wasn't necessarily there for the whole time, he would actually create sketches. A lot of the time, if he wasn't painting something in the field, he would create these sketches and then duplicate them and then write notes right on the sketch to whatever explorer was in the sketch saying such minute details as were the ear flaps on your hat up or down or could you tell me more about the snow cover in this particular area or tell me more about the exact shade of the tent or you know whatever so really trying to get these really really minute details and he would write these notes right on the sketches and then whoever he sent them to would write the answer right back. So not only are his sketches his rough drafts for a larger piece of work, but they also become these really interesting pieces of correspondence. And so you can see his process. And to get from the sketch to his final piece is also really incredible. And thinking about the resourcefulness that it takes to complete that is really interesting as well. The innovation, right? That mm-hmm. goes along. I mean, we talked about this kind of exploration, expeditionary pursuit has always driven innovation in terms of making things lighter or mm-hmm. more nutritious or whatever, yeah. right? <laughs> mm-hmm. And with art, in terms of documentation, as we've alluded to, the technology has changed. So at one point, it was canvas paints, mm-hmm. easel. At some point, we started hauling cameras. And I understand you have some amazing photographic pieces in your collection here. Talk a little bit about how photography evolved in this space and how that impacted the cameras and the equipment. Sure. So we actually have the first and second photos 
ever taken in the Arctic. And the first set was William Bradford, and he published a book of those images called On Polar Shores. And that was 1874. And so we have, it's a huge, huge atlas. I mean, it's probably four feet tall, the size of this book. And they're mostly landscape images. So you see a lot of icebergs, you see a lot of glaciers, all that kind of stuff. And then on the George Strong Nares expedition, those are the second photos ever taken in the Arctic. And that was 1875, 1876 was that expedition. I want to just pause for a minute because in actuality, that wasn't that long ago. No, not at all. Not at all. 1872. Yeah. The first photos. And to think where we are now from a technology perspective or what have you, it's so easy to forget that that wasn't that long ago. Right. I mean, today we all carry cameras around in our pockets, right? Our phones. But back then, you're carrying a huge heavy piece of equipment. And the Nares photos are really, really interesting because they document some Inuit life. And so, you know, these Inuit people, their expressions in the photos are so incredible. Because remember, early cameras wasn't instant, right? You had to freeze and then, you know, take the photo. And so you got a lot of blurry images and that kind of thing. But their expressions are so incredible because they're, you can kind of tell they're like, why are we doing this? What is (laughs) happening? Right? Exactly. Yeah. Like, why are we staring at this thing? Because the technology, not only was it so new, Right. But then you bring it to the Inuit people in the Arctic and they're like, what is going yeah. on? Well, first, of all, first of all, why are these people so pale? Yeah. And second of all, well, what is this crazy uh, box they, that they have? And why do these people think that it's okay to come to the Arctic in nothing but their Sunday best? That's a whole other <laughs> right. issue. But right, uh, right, it's right. Kind of, why, why are they eating with monogram yeah. China? <laughs> uh, yeah. Why do they bring their best silver tea set? So a lot of confusion, uh, yes, which is yes. really interesting. But also the interesting things that we have in our archive include our lantern slide collection. We have about 700 lantern slides in the collection. And that's the first form of projected image. So yeah. what that consists of, it's a collodion wet plate process. So what that means is you have your piece of glass, you take your image, you let it set, and then it's hand colored with specialized watercolors. You put another piece of glass on top of it, tape the whole thing together. And these things are very small. They're like three inches by two inches. They're not huge. I mean, you can make them any size you want, but that was the standard. And then you put a lantern or a light behind it and you get your projection of that image. And we have those from Teddy Roosevelt's River of Doubt expedition, which was 1913 to 1914. And we have them from the North Pole Discovery Expedition 1909. We have them from one of my favorites that we have. It's an image. And people may have seen this. It's a fairly... It's always funny when I say, you know, these are kind of like household names because who really knows about old Arctic explorers if you don't work at the Explorers Club. But (laughs) you may have seen it. It's an image of a bagpiper next to a penguin. And it's from the 1902-1904 Scottish National Antarctic Expedition. And so we have those lanterns. By the way, the penguin was not happy. (laughs) Well, it's really, really funny because one of our past presidents tells the joke whenever he sees that it's one of his favorite images. He's like, you know, the penguin was so excited at the end of the photo because he couldn't believe he got the bagpiper to stand still for that long. Um, So, And the bagpiper in question, his name is Lieutenant Kern. It's just, we have these incredible images, but then you look at, again, the logistics of what it takes. And some of them were made in the field. Some of them were made back when they had returned home, but they're heavy. I mean, these boxes of slides are heavy to kind of bring with you. The cameras were heavy. It was actually Carl Akeley. Fragile as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's glass. Absolutely. The slides themselves and the cameras as well. It was Carl Akeley who in 1915, I believe, patented the Akeley pancake camera, which was the first camera designed specifically for rugged expedition life, right? So it's this supposed to be really lightweight. Spoiler alert. It's one of the heaviest things we have in the collection. (laughs) It had two different tripods. Both of them, it was the first camera that could go 360. Mm -hmm. And it was really flat 
Uh, sort of an accordion kind of style, right? Actually, not sort of accordion. This, okay. is, this was the first camera to go away from that accordion style. Okay, so... It kind of looks like two dinner plates pushed together okay. with probably like a five-inch film canister in Got between it. them, if Got that it. makes okay. sense. Yeah, so it's this really cool-looking camera. That was what they were bringing with them because that was supposed to be the better camera than the accordion-looking thing because it was more... Fun fact, it, it by was the quicker. way. Yeah, fun yeah. fact, by the way. A lot of people don't realize that the original name for that was the sourdough pancake <laughs> camera. And then they just shortened it to exactly, pancake. Exactly, oh, yeah. Sorry, just, just pancake, just pancake. Because you know what? They were like, yeah, some people don't like sourdough. They like rye. So yeah, no. But they're really cool and they're really rare. That's also something interesting that I got in the mail. Back to that original question. It was out in California in a storage unit. The camera itself belonged to Leroy G. Phelps, who was an incredible early documentary filmmaker. His early documentary on elephants was totally pioneering, had never been done before, which is really great. And his great nephew out of the blue reached out to me and said, hey, I have this camera in storage. I'm not sure if you've ever heard of anything like this, but um, it's an Akeley pancake camera. I was wondering if you might be interested. And of course, I'm like, oh my gosh, this is so incredible. I think only 400 of them were ever made. So they're really rare. And it was just in a storage unit. So we now have it here at the club, which is fantastic. Yeah. So, And the family was so generous. A lot of times when we get these artifacts, it's because families realize what they have is right. of historic significance. And they say, well, it's not doing us any good in a storage unit. Let's put it somewhere where people are going to be able to enjoy it and learn from it. So it's always really exciting when things like that pretty much show up on my doorstep. <laughs> wow. I mean, I know so many of our listeners right now are like, I want Lacey's job. <laughs> Anybody can come job? work with me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm a department of one. I'm always looking for help. Do you have interns that come in and support I do. You? Yeah, yeah. I have a wonderful team of interns and it just kind of depends. I try to be really flexible with interns. And I mean, I take everybody from high school age all the way up to grad student because I just want to give everybody a chance to work th with this collection. And the great thing about this collection is it's so diverse in the sense that we have a library of about 14,000 volumes. We have, as I said, the, about 3,500 maps. Our archive is about 550 linear feet of documents, photographs, manuscripts, lantern slides, journals, all original. And then we have the Art and Artifact Collection, which numbers to about 1,000 objects. And that ranges from everything to taxidermy, to artwork, to... Yeah glasses that were worn on an 1884 expedition to old cameras. Right, so, right. you know, people can really get, my interns can really get, I hope, a fulsome experience here. How many unopened bottles of booze do we have in our archives? <laughs> Actually, at least four. And that is because <laughs> I have the archival, and I'm saying, I just used quotes forgetting that this is a podcast, <laughs> but they're the archival version of when Johnny Walker did in the Explorers Club collection. Yes, yes. I have one of each of those bottles Got it, for good. archival purposes. Yes, um, and they yes. have not been opened, I promise. I could imagine the temptation to that, you know. Yeah, I mean, they're just, it's funny. Again, the things that just sort of show up right, at my door, right. my executive director was like, here, we need to save these for the archives or the last bottles. So put them in here. I'm like, oh, okay, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I'll take these four bottles of Johnny Walker. No big deal. So I'm just curious though. I mean, obviously so many great archives, priceless in many ways. This building is only so big in terms of security and storage and what have you. What does that look like? I mean, you must have storage offsite or not, but talk about that a little bit. I'm so excited that you asked because I'm a huge storage geek and not too many people like to talk about museum storage because who thinks about it, right? But everything is currently stored in the building wow. except for our 425, 14 and 16 millimeter original film reels. They are in a salt mine in Kansas. We are sharing some space very generously with the Missouri History Museum, but they were lovely that we had a connection and they said, oh, 425 reels is really nothing. So 
let's storm oh, yeah, storm yeah. in the salt mine with with yeah pretty much which was great and actually they're in the same salt mine as that the academy awards use and right. so like the original Wizard of Oz reel is there, Fantastic. which is really so. My I like to think that my films are kind of celebrities now. Absolutely. But anyway, so that's the only thing that is offsite. The films themselves have been digitized. Everything else is here in the building. I only have two really small storage closets, so for the most part, everything artifact-wise is on display. The archives is a room unto itself. The map room is a room unto itself. I do have a rare book room, but fourteen thousand volumes are pretty much spread throughout the entire home, and it doesn't matter the size of the museum. Think of the biggest museum you can think of. They're out of space too. Everybody's out of space in museums, yeah. so it's figuring out ways to use the space creatively, maximize your space, and go from there. And sometimes that includes things like deaccessioning, which means to get rid of things. And I say that lovingly. It's not like we're throwing things out on the sidewalk. But the interesting thing about our collection, and this is not just exclusive to an institution like the Explorers Club, but we have always been a collecting institution. But my job did not exist until 2003. So that's 99 years of backlog data, collecting, sometimes lack of provenance, sometimes things getting literally dropped off like the baby Moses. You know, it was a private club. So people would say, oh, just put it in the basement of the Explorers Club. And that's how we got some of the things that we got. That's, of course, not indicative of our whole collection. But there are some things in the collection that don't actually fit within the scope of our collecting. Sure mission, which is to the mission of the research It wasn't meant to here. be a private, the, the closet for private exactly, members. Exactly, right? exactly. It wasn't, you know, old explorers who just needed to get rid of stuff because their wives said, you need to yeah, clean right. out this but closet. But they didn't and want to actually get rid of it. So exactly. They just, yeah. So they just brought it to the club. But Claire Fleming was the original archivist and curator. And we did have, I shouldn't say, so my actual position as it exists now is what existed, began in 2003. Prior to that, it was the Library and Archives Committee and sort of volunteer or part-time librarians who came in to steward the collection the best they could, but it wasn't as supported a role as it is today. And so Claire Fleming came in as the first archivist and curator, and it was a Herculean effort to get us up to scratch in terms of being a functioning research collection. And today we process about 500 research requests. Interestingly enough, I've been here for almost six years and I have never had the same request twice, which I think is absolutely fascinating. I mean, people have wanted to know about the same subject, but never for the same reason, which I think is great. But now that we have this collections policy and this mission for what we collect and why we collect it, we can go back through and sort of weed out things that don't necessarily fit within the scope of the collection. So our library, for example, when the club was founded, we were supposed to be the world's leading library for exploration research. Well, up until about 1918, we only had like 50 books. So we were not really checking off that box. And so 1918 is when a member by the name of James B. Ford became a member of the club. And he along with Marshall Savi, who was one of our founders and also the chair of the library committee at the time, they went out and purchased over 8,000 volumes and set up this really, basically what was a typical wealthy gentleman's library. And so in those 8,000 volumes, I mean, we got some incredible treasures, but we also got some things that aren't necessarily within the scope of what we want, you know, Japanese homes and their surroundings. Not that that's not an important work, but No one would think, hey, I bet you the Explorers Club has a copy of that. Let's go check that out kind of thing. And so it's making those decisions. And that's across the board, whether it be with the library or with the art and artifacts or with the archives. It's making those decisions of what actually fits. What are people going to research from us? And how can we find a better home for things that don't fit within the collection? 
So, I mean, I want to be respectful of your time. I have to ask you this question because of what we're talking about. What keeps you up at night? Oh, wow. Okay. As an archivist. Well, I was going to say, I'm planning a, a wedding, so that kind of keeps me up at night. <laughs> Besides your upcoming wedding, which, by the but, way, mazel tov. But no, as an archivist and curator, really what keeps me up at night is finding ways to move forward with the collection in a meaningful way and how to best serve not just our members, but the public, right? Because I... I'm a huge, huge proponent of accessibility. And, you know, why are we keeping these things if people are not using them or people don't know that they're here? And so my biggest issue, aside from the fact that the collections are currently housed in an old 100-year-old New York building, so whatever's happening outside is happening inside. We have not a lot of climate control, not a lot of environmental control like you would see in a more traditional museum. That's a really tough thing. But aside from that, and I think almost bigger than that, because if we have these things, but we're not necessarily, I don't want to say we're not taking care of them, but they're not in museum standard settings, then we have to share what we have, you know, while it's still in good working condition. And so it's finding ways to connect with audiences that are not just able to come here to 46 East 70th Street on the Upper East Side in Manhattan. And so I'm working to digitize the collection, get it onto an outward-facing asset management system. So one day, hopefully in the not-too-distant future, anybody worldwide can go to the Explorers Club website and see what we have in our collections. And so that is something that is... I'm incredibly passionate about that, getting it out to people and really utilizing the collections in a much better way. And this is not to kind of inflate my position here, but a lot of times if I don't know that it's in the collection, then nobody has any idea it's in the collection. And I am one person, so do not know everything that's in the collection in every single drawer. I have a good idea and a good sense, but there are definitely things that we find that we didn't know we're here and still to this day. And so being able to get what we do know is here out there is huge because it shouldn't just live and die with me. Right. And, you know, it's like that sense of honoring, right? I mean, you want to honor the piece, the person that donated it, the future generation who exactly, you know, yeah. wants to learn from it. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, we do have here in the collection, for example, the meteorological journals from the Lady Franklin Bay Expedition, which everyone's like, oh, yes, of course, everybody knows about that, right? But no, it was this ill-fated 1881 to 1884 Arctic expedition where unfortunately of the 25 men who went up, only six survived. But they did some really cutting edge meteorological work while they were there. And the journals sat in the Arctic for an additional 15 years because, of course, when they were finally rescued, their first thought was not, hey, let me grab the journals. But those journals still exist and they are and have been used to track climate change. And so that's really interesting. All of this can still be relevant. And, you know, things like our flag reports, the Explorers Club flag is an incredible time-honored tradition here at the club. As I mentioned, our members go on upwards of 600 expeditions each year. Only about 50 of those expeditions are given flags. So it gives you an idea and a sense of what an honor it is to carry the flag and the caliber of expedition that is awarded the flag. Every time that flag comes back, members bring with it a flag report. And I kind of equate it to a book report, right? Who were you with? What did you do? What are some of the findings that you had? And people use those, you know, and it could be, okay, I'm planning an expedition to wherever. Mm -hmm. And, you know, who has been there? What have they done? How have they done it? Can I see their work? And then build on it. You know, those resources are really important for so many of our members, not just the members, for members of the public as well, which is, you know, the fourth grader who's writing a research paper on Matthew Henson. He should be able to access that or the person who wants to know more about Eugenie Clark, the shark lady, right? For their third well, grade and, and, animal and, assignment, and she should be able to know that. This, but this makes 
learning fun. Exactly. It brings history alive. It does. And that was the whole point about why I got into this in the first place. And that's why I do what I do is to bring the history alive and make it this really tangible thing for people, no matter what age you are. Because the awesome thing about exploration is somebody, it doesn't matter who you are, you'll connect with some story here in some way. And I think that's something really special about the club and the fact that we can harness that and harness our resources that we have here and share it out. I think that is something that is really worthwhile. Lacey Flynn, I have one last question for you. So as a bit of an outdoorsman myself, it's funny, I'll crack open an old book or an old journal from an old trip. Mm -hmm. And ever so often I'll do that and a mosquito will fall out, a bug will fall out. Yes. My last question (laughs) for you is how many times do you open an archive (laughs) and a bug fall out? Oh my gosh. You never, as an archivist or a curator, as someone who stewards a collection, you never want to talk about pests because you do not want to bring that down on you. It depends on the book and it depends on the collection. I mean, we do have things like bird wings in collections, but they're supposed to be there, right? Right, right. So I have to say, luckily, I've been very fortunate within this collection to not have any huge pest problems. Because we're in New York, the biggest thing that we get are cockroaches, and those are yeah. in the basement. So yeah. luckily, I've never opened a book and, and way, had a cockroach fall out. They'll be here long <laughs> after everything in this collection. So luckily, I've never had a mosquito fall out of a book, which is... Knock on wood, because yes. you do not wish that on an archivist. Excuse me. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I don't even but wish yes, it on myself. I don't wish it on anybody. Yeah, you don't wish it on anybody. Nobody yeah. wants a bug to fall out of their book. But yeah, no, we've we've had some cockroaches in the basement. Yeah. Lacey Flint, thank you for sitting down with me and our listeners at Not Real Art. Thank you so much for having me. It's been so much fun. Hey there. Thanks for tuning in. Please be sure to like this episode and share it with your friends on social. And if you haven't already done so, Please be sure to press subscribe and follow us on IG at Not Real Art Official. We appreciate the support. Sourdough, out.